welcome to Podship Earth. This is your host, Jared Blumenfeld. This week, Cousin David and I go to Tel Aviv. But before we can get there, David gets into a big discussion with the woman at the El Al ticket counter. I just thought I was like doing a regular security check and she starts asking me like basic questions. Why are you going to Israel? Who are you going with? What are you going to do? And I'm giving her all the answers. And then she's like, do you belong to synagogue? I'm like, no. Are you religious? I'm like, no. But I did tell her I fasted in Yom Kippur. And then I see her like, like wagging her finger at you. I mean, it took forever. And then what was she asking you? And then she's like, well, do you know any other holidays? And I was like, um, Passover, what else? Do you celebrate? I'm like, maybe I'll go to a Seder. And then I'm like, but Hanukkah, my cousin throws a big Hanukkah party. She goes, really? Like, what kind of party? And I'm like, well, we, we, he, it's a latke party and we got 20 pounds of potatoes and I peel the potatoes. And then- but she didn't even believe you, right? No, she kept listening. And at the end, I'm like, yeah, it's a really big party. It's like 100 people with like candles. And she goes, okay, you can go. And that was it. I was in. That's so anyone listening out there, you got to just participate in like a, a cultural event like peeling potatoes and you can get into Israel. Uh, we did a lot more. When we landed, it was just amazing like how atrocious the drivers were. I've never seen I don't know what it is, but like... I don't think they used a blinker one time. I felt like just from the airport to where we were staying, there were, we could have gotten three accidents. <laughs> it was amazing. Next stop, literally in the first day, was the single best falafel I've ever had in my life. Unbelievable. I wanted to eat more, but I knew we had a lot more falafels to taste. And then like every single night we've been here, I mean, we've been working hard. Don't get me wrong. David and I doing doing a lot of work for Podge Perth, but at night we'd go out. People every single night would be partying till two in the morning every waitress we had during the meal would come over and be like can i give you a free drink jared's still drunk on all the free drinks (laughs) i'm not sure that's true but like could you believe on a tuesday afternoon at 3 30 like the beach was packed it literally if we were in los angeles it would be like the fourth of july that's how many people were on the beach and it was just a normal day it was i i didn't understand it okay We did have work. The work was to try and find out what the hell is happening on environmental issues in Israel. We actually did manage to find that out. First up, we talked with Jay Shafet, who is the director of the Society for the Protection of Nature in Israel. And he helped give us kind of a lay of the land. I start by asking Jay about the Israel National Trail, which looks like an even hotter, drier version of the hike Yair and I did this summer in New Mexico. It's called by National Geographic, one of the 20 epic trails of the world. It traverses Israel north to south or south to north, depending what season you want to hike it. It's quite a strong hiking culture here, and the Israel National Trail is a rite of passage for Israelis when they, sometimes when they finish high school with a group of friends, or when they finish the army, or when they finish college, but it's a good three-month trek. Have you done any of it? Uh, parts of it here and there, but haven't, yeah, haven't set out over the whole trail. Talking of long journeys, I couldn't help but notice all the birds in the sky in Israel. 
We're the second most important bird migration fly route in the world. Virtually all the birds from the Eurasian landmass, except for the ones in the far western part of the continent, uh, that migrate, fly over Israel and over the Sahara Desert and the Arabian Desert, and they winter in Africa. About a half billion birds, 500 million birds each direction, each six months. Uh, and uh, we take that very, very seriously. Uh, with the government, uh, they created with us a network of bird watching uh, centers and uh, scientific observatories along the length of the country. Jay, so how long has your organization been around? SPNI was founded in 1953 by a group of citizens and uh, scientists who were concerned when the government and the Jewish National Fund came out with this grandiose plan to drain the Hula swampland. I'd always heard that the Hula area up by the Sea of Galilee had to be drained because of malaria. It had nothing to do with malaria. It had to do with creating more agricultural land for the farmers and the lobby and the Israeli ethos of settling the land and farming the land. Um, But we knew uh, that it was going to damage both the quantity and quality of the water flowing into the Kinneret. Those wetlands are a huge a kidney uh, that purifies the water and, uh, and you know, acts as a crucial uh, conduit. And that is now one of the most important bird migration stopovers on our fly route and in the world. Uh, it, v- virtually the entire uh, d- world population of European cranes stops there. 40,000 at a time lift off from the Hula wetlands during migration season. Uh, when they wake up, they sleep standing up in the in the wetlands, and it's, it's an incredible sight to see. On the topic of planning, it seems like Israel copied the worst from the U.S., when it came to things like urban sprawl. I mean, it's a small, dense country, and we suffer from, just like America, from suburban sprawl, uh, where land use and carbon footprints is really high per person. Every person, when you turn 16, you need a car because there's no other way to get around. And every city in Israel has suburbs or even parts of the city whereby they take you know 15 or 20-story buildings and put them way out in the middle of nowhere, four or five together with beautiful green grass around them, but nothing else. No services, no nothing. It's a crazy way of building. A lot of planners working in the environmental field are really have begun to change the culture. Uh, city mayors and city managers now think differently. Tel Aviv is a dense, uh, smart, relatively environmentally friendly city. There's more skyscrapers per capita in Tel Aviv than any city in the world. But we don't really want to be Manhattan. We'd be really happy being Amsterdam or Brooklyn. Israel and California have a great deal in common. We both are arid Mediterranean climates, and we both are suffering from droughts more frequently because of climate change. But in the case of Israel, I read that the Jordan River, the Dead Sea, and the Sea of Galilee are losing water at a very rapid rate. Very, very worrisome issues. Um, you know, water issues are, have been from time immemorial the main problematic issues of this part of the world. Uh, and uh, some of it is, you know, probably cyclical cycles. But Israel's current drought cycle is uh, unprecedented. You know, many people think, like many things in the world, the extreme weather events that are happening are due to climate change. And Israel, uh, a tiny country, isn't a huge contributor to the global problem. But uh, as a coastal country and as a very fragile country situated here at the intersection of three continents and five climatic zones, uh, we're very sensitive to changes. What we call the Jordan River is really just a trickle, uh, not navigable even by a flat-bottomed kayak, or people tried to do that uh, early in the summer before the summer really started. It was not possible. The problem is both the lack of rainwater 
and the um, rapid development. I would say to a large degree, especially up north, the uh, nature protection people are in a constant struggle with the farmers. One of our simple solutions is but if we just take the water downstream rather than upstream, we can pay for it to go back upstream in a pipe, but that allows nature and people included to, you know, to be able to kayak and benefit. Keeping that water flowing through nature is one of our top goals. And then in the Dead Sea, the problem is uh, exacerbated by a couple of things. One is all of the mining that goes on, both for salt and um, potassium and bromide, and the geology of the area is causing these huge sinkholes, which are making it really dangerous. Gas stations have fallen into the cracks in the road, and they every every month they're changing another portion of the road. We're in Tel Aviv right now. It looks like there's rampant development. Where are they getting their water from, Jay? What's really feeding the huge development and what's making sure that what happened in, or almost happened in Cape Town is never going to happen here, which is, you know, there are heavy and I think wise, prescient, and uh, relatively well-planned investment in desalination. Uh, we have five plants online, uh, four in the, along the Mediterranean, one in the in uh, Gulf of Aqaba. There's another one coming online that'll be powered by solar power in Aqaba that we're theoretically sharing with the Jordanians. Uh, and that's keeping water in the taps, but it's not keeping water in nature. There is a plan now to put desalinated water back in the Jordan River. And, of course, the overuse of the aquifers in under the, the coastal aquifer here and the mountain aquifer where Israel uh, uses at will and until those aquifers are also dangerously close to their red lines and they can start to get brackish. Still the biggest and only real freshwater reservoir source in the country. We're by far and away the country that uh, reuses uh, 80% of its wastewater. The next highest country is Spain, less than 40% of its use, and that goes all, only to agriculture. So, you know, the drinking water in Tel Aviv and the home use and stuff, which again is only 10% of water use in an industrialized country, uh, that's coming mostly from desalination. Talking with Jay made me curious about Israel's reputation as a global leader in water conservation. We meet up with Oded Distel, who directs the Environmental Innovation Program at Israel's Ministry of Finance. I ask Oded to explain the source of this focus on eco-ingenuity. I would say one is the, the necessity and the feeling that uh, we simply have no other choice. So we have to, uh, to invent. This is a good drive. And second, I think that it's, it's in the culture uh, in Israel. People are uh, um, people dare to think differently. Because like drip irrigation, that was an Israeli invention. Yes, yes. And, and you know, the story is, uh, is amazing. It's a story about somebody that uh, looked out of the window and all of a sudden he saw that one tree is bigger than the others. said, how come? And then he went out and investigated and he realized that there is a leakage in the pipe. And then he thought, ah, let's use it. And this is the beginning of drip irrigation. The wave of uh, new, new stuff is amazing. The fact that, uh, you know, in the, la in, in the years before, this uh, high-tech sector was defined to uh, software, uh, defense, uh, internet. And now it is spread all over. So we see it in, uh, in water, in agriculture, in transportation, in energy. And it opens uh, amazing new opportunities uh, for, uh, for those uh, sectors to become much more efficient, fast, uh, uh, cheaper, 
and uh, to interact with the with their customers to be able to uh, to be transparent uh, so it's a new it's a new game Jay Shafet from the protection of nature in Israel was just talking to me about the gravity of water problems right now in Israel the Jordan River and is the Dead Sea both are uh, in in uh, in a bad shape Uh, there is a huge project that is being discussed between Israel, uh, the Palestinian Authority and Jordan about uh, saving the Dead Sea. Hopefully it will uh, materialize. And uh, the story with the, with the Jordan River is, is, really, uh, is really sad. I do hope that uh, we'll be able to overcome and to uh, inject fresh water to the river and revive it. So the Dead Sea may really actually be dying. Yeah, we don't get enough uh, water uh, entering the Dead Sea. So we have a place called the Salton Sea in California, which is very similar. And I just spoke to some people that were looking at piping water in from the Pacific. And they said, oh, actually, like 25 years ago, a project was proposed like that for the Dead Sea. And actually, it could be gravity-fed because the Dead Sea is so low. So it didn't happen till now uh, for different uh, reasons, some uh, environmental uh, objectives and some financial and, and on and on. But I think we, we understand now that probably this is the only uh, solution to the Dead Sea. Otherwise, we are losing it. Given that the vast majority of water being used in Israel is for agriculture, I wanted to find out what new technologies Israeli farmers are turning to for help. I meet with Nir Ohana from Conserve Water, who himself grew up on a farm in the north of Israel. Nir, what did you grow? We grow apples, cherries, plums, pomegranate, pomegranate. Basically, any, any fruit that, uh, that you can imagine. I used to help my dad in the community in picking fruits, trimming trees, uh, fixing irrigation, and uh, anything that, uh, that requires uh, labor, basically. Water seems like the lifeblood of Israel, especially if you're a farmer. Most of the percentage of the land of Israel is actually desert, and this uh, percentage are going higher and higher over the years. And because of that, uh, it opened a lot of room for innovation in that field of saving water and basically precision agriculture. How is water priced in Israel? Farmers get a budget, a budget that they can use, and they can't use any more than the, the water budget that they actually receive. So uh, before every season, a farmer actually needs to... The, to decide how much land you're actually going to be farming and which crops will actually get more or less water based on the price in the market or based on the future predicted uh, market price of the crop. How do farmers think about water relative to other costs? So obviously, um, being a farmer in Israel, it's a very, very tough job. The main cost for farmers in Israel will be uh, the water. Tell us a little bit about how artificial intelligence is being used in your startup to, to help farmers. We can determine how much uh, soil moisture in the ground uh, every day by measuring 
and basically analyze the, uh, this data from these satellites. And by doing that and gathering a lot of other information uh, and data, we basically uh, predict how much uh, water needs to be irrigated every day uh, for over 90 different crops uh, anywhere in the world. It actually gets to the accuracy of sensors in the ground, but not, not, not come with the cost. That means farmers who couldn't afford previous technologies are now going to be, like, if you were a farmer, you didn't have enough money to invest in monitors that gauge your soil moisture. You could now invest in AI. Um, yes, exactly. So um, most farmers in the world, not just in Israel, um, most of them don't even have the basic knowledge for the right irrigation needs. Most of the farmers in the world, they irrigate with flooding their fields, and basically they want to make sure that plants getting the water and they get their crops at the end of the year. Uh, that alone save probably 50-60% of, uh, of water use. So your dad up in the Golan Heights, does he use these technologies? Yes, I'm currently operating the system for my dad. The new generation is basically uh, accepted with open arms and adapted really quickly. And the old generation, obviously, uh, it takes more time. And um, it, it, it's obviously not uh, the most uh, easiest thing for them. Whether you farm in Israel, Brazil, or Fresno, California, pollination is critical for both crop production and for nature. Michal Roisman and Omer Devadi founded a very cool company called Bee Hero to help farmers and bees stay in the game. I start by asking Omer how bees are doing. 70% of the major crops that humanity consumes are dependent on bee pollination. And the huge mortality rates of bees because of colony collapse disorder, the trend is not very good in terms of the bees. Is it getting better? Like, where are we? So for the last 10 years, um, the world was faced to colony collapse disorder that brings the bee mortality rates to more than 40% every single year. You have millions of beehives dying every year. And you have those commercial beekeepers that are doing the best they can, struggling in order to um, make those colonies survive in order to sustain an ecosystem where we, we get pollination and honey and the bees can live because of the environmental changes, because of urbanization, because of a lot of use of pesticides in the last few years, some part of the intensity of, of agriculture. And all those verticals makes the bees live in an environment where they cannot sustain, they cannot survive. So the main challenge is to bring the beekeepers the right tools in order to handle those new environment changes and help the bees live and survive for a long time. So David and I were actually just in, um, in the San Joaquin Valley talking to almond farmers. One of the things they talked about was like, oh, we're going to make almond trees that don't need pollination. I think we are very far from a day that we will have no bees uh, to pollinate our crops. The technology is very expensive and the efficiency of the bees is something that we will find very hard to, to compete with. It's millions of years of evolution brought the bees to be the most efficient creatures in terms of pollination. And if you only treat the almond trees by providing better 
uh, doing GMO in order to have self-pollinated almond trees, what happens to the rest of the, the, the plants on, on this planet? We do not understand at the moment the entire impact and value of bees on our ecosystem. If you lose 40% and then next year you lose another 40%, that, that's pretty dramatic. Every year you get those more than 40% mortality rates, their margins getting lower and lower. And you don't see a lot of new commercial beekeepers getting into this business because it's a low margin field. Um, and in few years we'll be in a situation that we don't have a lot of people responsible for bees and then what happens? We are used to have those 10-15% mortality rates because of winter loss, um, because of storms, etc. But the extra 30%, this is all us. That's a pretty dramatic problem to try and solve. Michal, how did Bee Hero get started? So we're talking about a very low-tech world. We figured out that there is so much technology you can uh, bring into it and we and we try to understand how is a beekeep, beekeeper uh, day look like and today the the way that it it actually operates is that he needs to just by his intuition and gut feeling decide to which one of his hives is he going first then he goes into these hives opens the hive opening the hives is something that really hurts the bees um, we understood from a very uh, early stage that we need to use the state-of-the-art technology and make a f kind of a frog uh, jump to, to the best uh, technology that is out there. And now we have it. We have sensors that we can put inside the hive that can monitor the hive 24-7 and actually uh, give us insights of what's going on in the hive all of the time. And you don't need to travel for two or three days uh, to a yard with hives uh, when there are hives in other places uh, need to be uh, examined. So tell us a little bit about a beekeeper. So in a hive we have between 20 to 80,000 bees. Uh, this is one hive. Uh, when we look at United States, this is a very centralized market. We have um, beekeepers that have thousands of hives, and the largest beekeeper has uh, hundreds and thousands of hives. When we look at, uh, at Europe, for example, we have a lot of hobbyist beekeepers owning just a few hives. So this is, uh, it really uh, varies from one country to another. We, uh, as a company, um, especially in our first stages, uh, look at the commercial beekeepers because of the way they work. We are working at the moment with 25% of the Israeli beekeeping market and we're starting to work with very large key players in the in the US uh, beekeeping landscape all in order to generate better quality beehives um, and what we've seen for the last few months working with our technology that we have the ability to generate those hives and hives that were monitored and empowered by Bee Hero increased crop yields in sunflowers, for example, by 20%. And the same thing we want to bring to the almonds and the cotton and the soya beans. We take all of the information that we collect, some of it is temperature, humidity, sound uh, that's going on inside the hive, uh, with the know-how of the beekeeper, with genetic lines of the, of the queens, um, with the microclimate and, and so forth. And we take all of that and, and we have our machine learning algorithm that keeps learning that and training itself. And then from just understanding when a hive is getting uh, is in an anomaly, being uh, not healthy, we can actually understand specific situation uh, such as missing queen. And when there is no queen in a hive, the, the hive is going to collapse in a few days. And the beekeeper needs to know about that so he can um, go and treat it. And this is something amazing that can actually change um, the way the beekeepers operate today. Why does the hive die if 
the queen is dead or not healthy. The idea of the hive is to keep creating itself. So the queen is responsible of creating the new generation. And this is what all the hives is about. Bringing the pollen into the, uh, into the hive is for the new generation. And when the queen is not there and the bees understand that, they just go out of balance. And this is why it can collapse. Are you optimistic, more optimistic than when you began this venture that this data will allow us to help bees and bee colonies recover? Um, yeah, definitely. For the last year and a half, we've been running a lot of experiments and collecting a huge amount of data in order to be able to classify specific reasons that makes the colony collapse. And once we go bigger and scale, we will have the ability also to optimize the way that you distribute those beehives in the field in order to generate an environment that is better for the bees and they want to go much more out and bring more food to the colony. And it's a never-ending process. So as long as the colony gets stronger, the quality of pollination increases and then the quality of pollination brings more, more food to the colony and it generates better quality of a beehive. We're still getting to know this amazing world, huge amount of data of something that uh, we are depend on and no one collects any data today. So we are actually building the largest data set of bees in the world. I love bees and I'm so glad that they now have a hero. There's so much innovation happening in Israel at the same time in areas like goals for renewable energy, it seems like the country is going nowhere. I asked Jay Shafet from the Protection of Nature in Israel to help me understand. Israel is still stuck in some pre-enlightened quagmire in terms of renewable energy. Our goals are 17% by 2030. That's ridiculous by global standards. And we're probably not even going to meet that if things are going the way they're going. The Unlike our water management, our electrical management system, the power grid, we have a, I like to say we have a very smart water grid where we're constantly taking water from here to there and, you know, moving it and keeping crops and everybody happy. Uh, but we have a stupid electric grid. We have a highly centrist electric company and an electric authority above that. It's a politicized organization. You know, this is a country with 360 days a year of sun. The potential for expansion is unlimited. David, is like everywhere you go in Tel Aviv, it seems like some kind of electric scooter, electric bike. It was insane. Yeah, there were definitely a ton of those uh, birds and what was the other one that you tried? Everything. I mean, like they have the bike program that they have in every city around the world. And then they have like MoBike and like all kind of share programs. But just the bikes go so fast. They definitely went fast, and you wanted me to test out the bird, and I, I thought it was too fast for me, so I had to go to a regular two-wheel bike. But well, I, I'm a big advocate of electric bikes, and in all the cities I've been to around the world, there's never been this like critical mass of electric bikes. The thing that you notice is like they're a little bit out of control, and I don't know, like there needs to be some rules probably if we're going to get electric bikes more widespread. I loved getting around the town. I thought it helped a lot. I just didn't know where I was supposed to be riding. A lot of people riding in the streets. Some people are riding on the sidewalks. And then sometimes, you know, I would be clicking my that really obnoxious ringing noise all the time to get people out of the way. And I just felt bad. Sometimes it would just click it if I wanted to get your attention, but it helped. That was funny. I mean, the thing is, like, we spend a lot of time thinking about electric vehicles only in the context of cars, um, bicycles, and scooters and all these other things are going to probably play a big 
role. One of the things that I learned in Israel is that the biggest breakthrough in electric vehicle technology is not about the vehicles themselves, but rather the streets on which they travel. David and I go to a garage 25 miles north of Tel Aviv to meet with Oren Ezer with Electrion, a company that spent the last six years perfecting a way of powering cars as they move. So Oren, tell us more. Our mission is to uh, create a sustainable transportation. And we transfer the energy wirelessly from the road, wirelessly directly to energize the, the car or the vehicle or the bus. So by doing that, we remove the size of the battery. So we reduce the, the weight of the bus, uh, reduce the cost and eliminated the range anxiety. You can drive 24 seven. So it's kind of like one of those Philips toothbrushes, right? Actually, the concept is, is almost the same, but here we are transferring 20 kilowatt per one meter. So one part is coil that we buried under the asphalt. We connect those coils through our system to the electricity grid, of course. The second part is a receiver that we installed at the bottom of the, bu the bus or the, the vehicle. Uh, and from there, we can recharge the battery or energize the engine. And the third one is a management unit outside the road, under the pavement. So the system is passive. All the coils are passive which means no energy under the road. And only when a bus drives over it, only a coil under the bus will be active and transmit energy. Do you want any, any vehicle to be able to eventually use it? I believe in evolution rather than revolution. So we uh, decided to start with a segment which is very polluting, like a bus inside the city. And we can create a project a very small one from the beginning. So uh, a bus drives in fixed routes. Uh, so it's very easy to prepare all the infrastructure needed for this bus. And then after we deploy the system in a city, we will open it for delivery trucks, car sharing uh, uh, service. And I believe the vision is to have autonomous vehicle in a city like Uber with our systems. So let's go and have a look at it. Yeah. The energy goes from that coil to that receiver. So you've got these black pads with about six inches between them. So tell us what, what's in the black pad that's buried under the asphalt. Only coils. So we have copper under the road. So it will last 100 years. So it's very important not to maintain this system and it must be cheap. Uh, this is the only solution when you can share this system because if I'm buying a battery, I'm the only one that can use this kind of battery, right? But if I'm putting the money, uh, uh, all the funding on the infrastructure, everyone can share it. Have you looked at other applications like in the United States, we were looking at this type of technology for the port of Los Angeles, where there's a lot of big moving equipment. It only move, the equipment only moves less than a mile back and forth. Perfect solution even airports. We are working on this technology for six years already. It's not easy because uh, you need to create a system that will be cost effective. So it must be cheap, easy to maintain, easy to install. We have already a car that drives on this system and I believe the next year you will hear about projects that we are going to do all over Europe. It's very difficult to create a system like this when the cost for one kilometer will be 300 
thousand dollar, which is which is uh, something very good. And so that's your goal to bring yeah. the price down. Yeah, the goal is to create a system uh, when th- when the cost will be very attractive, because eventually this will drive the the, the change. Do you want to see it? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So now we are going to activate the road, and we will drive the receiver uh, along the route, and we will transfer energy. So you will see the red light, which means that it's on, and we have a active uh, system. So the energy will go from the coil to the receiver to charge the battery inside the lab. So what, what's your prediction 20 years from now? What, what, what will you see? 20 years from now, we would see electric roads all over. We would see autonomous vehicles without a battery that can drive 24-7. And in that case, we will reduce the, the, the number of cars uh, dramatically. And of course, the pollution. And you don't need charging stations. If you have this kind of technology here, you don't need charging station. So you give back all the real estate to the, you know, to the public and you will see electric uh, roads. It was like magic to see this electric vehicle whizzing around the track, powered by coils 20 inches under the ground. It reminded me of disco lights because the power cells only activate when the vehicle is directly above them and then they automatically turn off. Another feature of this technology is that going downhill, the vehicles can return power back to the grid. California just set a goal of building 250,000 electric vehicle charging stations, but if Oren gets his way, that approach may soon be obsolete. David, when we were at the beach yesterday with all those folks, did you notice that people were just flicking their cigarette butts on the beach as if absolutely was nothing wrong with that? It was pretty crazy. There were cigarette butts everywhere. Like, you never see that. Yeah, and like bottle caps, everything. Like, there's a lot of litter. There's so much litter, not just there. I mean, we were driving around outside of that, and people were just throwing bags of trash. Like, it made no sense to me. Like, we we visit with all these clean tech companies. They're, like, on the cutting edge, and then you go to the beach, and it's like a trash party. It was pretty ridiculous. And kind of confusing. So we asked our guy, Jay Shafet, with the Society to Protect Israel's Nature, What's up with that? On the one hand, I would say Israel has a very deep and uh, natural connection to the natural world. Part of the Zionist ethos coming here was to reclaim the land, be on the land, be of the land. But uh, yeah, Israel has a culture of littering as well. Because at the same time, when you look out on the rooftops, there's a lot of solar hot water heaters and it seems like there are some practices that are pretty ingrained. He's actually Ben-Gurion pushed that law. And since, I think, 77, uh, all dwellings uh, that are in units of under eight, all buildings that have less than eight dwellings in them uh, are required to have uh, solar hot water heaters. It's also odd that every home has a solar hot water heater, and yet there are very few solar electric panels. In Tel Aviv and Jerusalem, the only recycling that happens is in big cages on the sidewalks where you can throw your plastic bottles and cardboard. Everything else gets sent to landfill, including food waste. David and I meet up with Oshik and Orit Efrati, who run Home Biogas, which takes food waste and turns it into natural gas and fertilizer in your yard. So how big an issue is food waste in Israel? I think it's not just in Israel. It's uh, billions of tons uh, of food waste every year 
in the world and it's just going up. And today 90% of the food waste is going to landfills and it's total waste of, of raw material, a lot of pollution created. So is this designed around like what the average family throws away? Yeah, exactly. This system uh, is for an average family that produces one, two kg of uh, food waste a day and needs around two hours, one, two hours of cooking gas a day. So what are, what are we looking at right now? This is the home biogas system. You can see there is an inlet where we can throw the waste. I have here some banana peels. Uh, so I'm just it, it kind of looks like a very small one of those versions of a jumpy castle that kids have, you know, at birthday parties. Yeah, so I'm throwing the banana peels in the inlet chamber, pushing it. Now the banana peels will go into anaerobic digester. In the anaerobic digester there are uh, bacteria that decomposing the organic matter produce methane gas. The gas will go up through a filter and it will uh, it will go to a gas holder the gas holder can hold around 700 liters of gas and create pressure without electricity so literally the whole thing is maybe seven feet by four feet yeah so this system can can treat more than two tons of food waste a year and produce enough gas for a normal family for almost all their cooking. And it works purely on biology, purely on biology. And you will reduce, let's understand, six tons of carbon emission a year. It's equal to the pollution that your, a normal family car is producing. So it's, it's a real impact. Let me show you something new, another application, which is a toilet. Let's go and have a look at the toilet. It's a bio toilet. Oh look, David's already... S David, you're not meant to be sitting on the toilet. Come on, get <laughs> off. Come on. What are you doing? So today there are more than 2 billion people that don't have access to, to toilet. And it's a major, major issue. Both ecological, social... Uh, it's, it's a big thing. You can see it looks like a normal toilet. Okay. It has a manual pump on the side. Easy to pump. And it flashes all the human feces into the biogas system. Into the same system? Into the same system. Okay. It's good enough according to American standard. It's much more economical uh, than connecting to a sewage, especially in places where the sewage is far and uh, it's almost impossible. And you produce from your shit, literally, you produce value. Now it's not just uh, uh, recycling the, the, the waste, it's also uh, reducing, uh, it's also saving a lot of water. Normal toilet takes uh, about 40,000 liters of water a year. Uh, oh. yeah, crazy, yeah, no, no, that's right. I'm sure that's right. So this one reduced it by 90%. It's a, it's a... Yeah, well, I mean, water is our most valuable resource and we're flushing it down the toilet. Exactly. This one takes only one liter of water per flush and it doesn't need clean water. This is kind of a toilet revolution. Yes, yes, definitely. We, we need one because it's such a waste right now. Yeah, yeah. We start working with the UN with it for refugee camps and many interesting places around the world that for them it's a life-changing solution.
So what's your next goal? Today there are 3 billion people around the world that still cook on open fire and charcoal. So we are developing now a biogas system that will be more economical. And the, the big vision of the company is that even the poorest people on earth can use it. And this way reduce, uh, you know, deforestation and, and also reduces death that cause out of uh, breeding the indoor air pollution, you know, out of the smoke that while they cook. We're going to be very active in East Africa and in India and also in, uh, in places, some places in Mexico and Brazil. All right, how's this system changed your life? I also cook on biogas for six years now, uh, almost only on biogas. For the daily life, for my family, we have two children. It's, uh, it's, I cook it every, on it every day on biogas. And is there any difference with cooking on biogas from normal gas? Um, for my feeling, it's uh, more, uh, how do you say, mild, like more soft. It's like it cooked good and it doesn't burn. It's a very good feeling. Tell me about like the project that you've gone and helped see uh, that, that is the most inspiring to you. The most exciting thing for me was uh, actually when we delivered to the Red Cross in Gaza. I think this is where it's needed. Tell us about um, how you're using them in the refugee camps. In refugee camps, generally, they, they have problems with infrastructure, waste management and energy. Because we are in the Middle East and uh, we want to do good, we have done already a few projects, the Biogas for Peace project, that uh, we trained Israeli students together with Palestinian students, got some sponsoring from uh, the EU, the USAID, and, uh, and those students work together and, and they were the technicians that actually went and installed to, uh, to very poor communities in the Palestine Authority. And, and we made them work together. And we brought technology from Israel to Palestine to improve their life and to improve the environment. As I see it, all you need is mutual experience. And when you work together, when you you, you, you work together, you sweat, you speak, so you see that we're all the same, we're all human beings. And this is, this is the, the best way to connect between people. Huh? Yeah, amazing. I was glad to hear from Oshik and Orit that they're engaged in trying to find some way of bridging the massive divide between Israel and the Palestinians. I asked Jay Shafet to give David and I an environmentalist perspective on this seemingly never-ending conflict. These views are all Jay's and not his organizations. The environmental problems of the West Bank and the fact that the Israeli settler population, which is 5% of the population of the West Bank, uses 60% of the water and um, all kinds of issues like that. Under, I'm talking about water from the aquifer. Uh, Israel uses a way disproportionate amount of, of uh, water uh, in the in the Jewish settlements uh, in the West Bank than, than, the Pal than is available to the Palestinians. Israel is an occupying force in the West Bank. It does what it wants. 
uh, the restriction of movement of the Palestinians, the restriction of their ability to plan and build houses, buildings, businesses. is uh, We control it all under a military government, and so we certainly control who's pumping what from the aquifers. So that's how it happens. From a personal perspective, how does it feel to bear witness to that? Israel is now 50 years into this occupation of the West Bank uh, and Gaza. Uh, even though we removed the settlers from Gaza, we still control Gaza. Uh, and that is, uh, you know, essentially rule over two and a half, three million people that are not citizens and don't have a path to citizenship. I've been fighting against that for the 35 years I've been in Israel. What Israel has done and hasn't done in the last 10, 15, 20 years since Oslo um, to advance it is a huge criticism that I have of this country, and I, you know, fight and demonstrate I'm politically active to, to change it. Apropos Trumpian America and uh, his supporters and um, fellow uh, dictators and or dictators in training around the world, from Putin to Erdogan to uh, to Hungary to uh, Latin American countries, this is something that's beginning to happen in Israel now. I mean, there's an erosion of the rule of law. Netanyahu has set Israel on a, uh, and he's been prime minister for 10 years now, and 13 altogether. He's set Israel on a, uh, on a destructive uh, and immoral path. Thanks to Rebecca Geller, Noah Avrahami, Moti Patriano, Noah Israelowitz, and Ron Brum for making David and my trip to Israel so productive, and to Jay Shafet. Oded Distel, Nir Ohana, Michael Rosman, Omer Davadi, Oren Ezer, and Oshik and Orit Efrati for spending so much time with us and for bringing Israeli environmental issues and innovations to life. In next week's episode, David and I travel to the Palestinian West Bank to work out if the politics of water has a chance of being resolved. Thank you so much for being part of the Podship Earth journey. From the entire Podship Earth crew, sound engineer Rob Spate, producer Nancy Ferranti, executive producer David Kahn, and me, Jared Blumenfeld. Shalom. Shalom. Shalom.